We are nearing home. That was beautiful. That was a wonderful reminder. Today we sung, A Mighty Fortress is Our God Twice. That song has special meaning to me now. We do serve a mighty God. And this week we have seen him do some wonderful and marvelous things. God is good. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into our presentation today. Um, It is really important that we have our thinking caps on for this presentation. You know, uh, the subject of the judgment is, uh, is one that brings fear into the hearts of people. And, uh, and it's mostly due to ignorance. And we're going to be looking at, uh, at the judgment today through the eyes of Israel. Um, and then we're going to begin the process of unpacking it in the studies uh, that lie ahead. What I'd like to do as we uh, launch into this presentation is to begin with a word of prayer. And, um, and then uh, let's get into this subject. So I'm going to kneel. You have knelt already if you'll bow your heads. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, uh, this is truly a special hour. We come before you, Lord. We have worshipped you in song. We have worshipped you in prayer and and the giving and returning to you our gifts to you. And Father, we now want to sit at your feet, Lord, and learn of you. This, this next presentation, Father, is so important to us um, because it, it lays the foundation to a lot of things we're going to be studying in the days ahead. But Father, we need the Holy Spirit to help us to grasp what, uh, what we're going to be learning. There's a lot of things today that have, in, in the Christian world, that's being taught, Lord, that, that really uh, skewers a lot of the things that you try to clarify here. And so we pray that you will shed a flood of light upon our minds that we can see the truth as it is in Jesus, as you have given it to us in your word. Now, Father, there's a lot of things here that I am very likely to forget but I claim John fourteen twenty six, in which you have promised not only to be our teacher, but to bring to our remembrance the things you've taught us. And so we claim that now, that you will be our teacher and bring this together for us. Please keep the evil one away and his distractions, Father. Place a hedge about us and truly shut us in that secret place of the Most High, that we may abide under the shadow of the Almighty. We thank you for this as we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our journey uh, through the most holy place. Uh, Once we entered into the most holy place, uh, we've been studying about God's law. And in our last presentation, we talked about the forgotten commandment. Uh, The one that God said to remember is the one that the world has forgotten. And it's the commandment regarding the Sabbath. Today's presentation on the Day of Atonement, we're going to be taking a look at one of the festivals 
uh, that was connected to the sanctuary. Now, there were actually seven festivals that were connected to the, the sanctuary. And you'll remember them. The, uh, the, the spring feast is the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks. And then the fall feasts, uh, was the, there were three, the uh, Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. Seven feasts. We keep seeing that number over and over again popping up in the sanctuary, don't we? That is a very important number to the Lord, and it thus needs to be to us as well. I don't know if you're aware of this, but those festivals are actually a prophetic timeline. You see, the sanctuary... Uh, was to help Israel to understand God's plan to save humanity. Those festivals were part of that. And they're actually a prophetic timeline of what God was going to do for humanity. They represented important waymarks in God's plan. I'll just go through them quickly. The first Passover was to be celebrated on the 14th day of Nisan. And if you remember, it commemorated the deliverance of uh, the nation of Israel out of Egypt. You remember the story. There were 10 plagues that God brought upon Egypt to convince the Egyptians to let Israel go. And the very last plague uh, was going to bring the death angel over the land of Egypt And all the firstborn, even of animals, were going to die unless they came into a house where the doorposts had been marked with what? With blood. It was blood from a lamb. Okay? And and the home that had that mark would be saved. They would be protected from the death angel. Now, we know who that blood represented, don't we? It represented the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. Uh, Later, on the 15th day of Nisan, that uh, which was the day that followed Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was actually a ceremonial Sabbath, and on that day they were to do no work. Uh, It was a very interesting festival. Uh, Israel, the Israelite, was to make sure that there was no leaven in their home on that week in which that festival was to be celebrated. The parents of, uh, of Jewish children, the Hebrew children, would give to their children a candle. And they would go through the house looking for leaven. And the parents would leave leaven in little places where the kids could find it, and then they would clean it up to make sure that all the leaven in the house was gone. My friends, what does leaven symbolize in the Bible? It was sin. What does the candle, that light, represent? The word of God, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And with that word, they were to teach the kids to make sure that there was no sin in the house, in the life. Are you with me? Very important. Then uh, came the festival of first fruits. This festival was to be celebrated on the day following the Sabbath uh, um, of the week of the Passover. And uh, the celebration of, uh, of this feast is actually one of the first uh, feasts regarding the, um, 
the harvest. There were actually three harvest feasts. This is the first one. And those three harvest feasts, by the way, are the ones that called for all the males to be sure to be present in Jerusalem. The first one, by the way, was the Feast of First Fruits, then the Feast of Weeks, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Those were all feasts regarding harvest. But on the Feast of First Fruits, what that was about is uh, the first harvest in the cycle of harvest in Israel, which was an agricultural society, was the barley harvest. And they would take the, the first, uh, the, the, the barley that had ripened first, there was a main harvest coming, but the one that, harvest, that was ripening first, they would get that barley and, and, and they would bring it to the temple and they would wave it before God as a thank offering for the harvest that was going to come. It was a wave that was done in faith. And so these represent, and then, of course, was the Feast of Weeks uh, that would follow 50 days later, and that was the wheat harvest, the grain harvest. And, um, but, but how does this teach us about the plan of salvation, Pastor? The Passover, 14th day of Nisan, was the day that Jesus died. He was the Passover lamb. You remember that night in the upper room, they met to celebrate the Passover. The next day was the unleavened bread, a ceremonial Sabbath. What did Jesus do in the tomb that day? He rested because it was the the Sabbath. By the way, on the Passover, one thing I failed to mention is that the lamb, the Passover lamb in the temple was... uh, was to die at three o'clock. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that on the day that Jesus died at three o'clock, as the priest was about to take the life of the lamb, suddenly the temple, uh, the veil in the most holy place was rent. Remember the Bible says that from top to bottom. The priest turned in horror to see what, would hap- what, was, what had happened, and in the confusion, the lamb ran away because the sacrifice had been given. Josephus tells us that. So Jesus actually dies at the very hour when the Passover lamb was to, be, was to die in the temple. Very interesting. Uh, anyway, and then he rests in the tomb uh, on the following day. Then on the third day, the first fruits, Jesus rises from the dead. And Paul says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 28 through 23, that Jesus is the first fruits of those who sleep in the grave, who will resurrect later. He is the first fruits. Then, 50 days after Passover, Uh, What happens? You have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and 3,000 give their lives to God an early harvest. It's amazing. By the way, I can go into much greater depth and blow your mind at the accuracy. The prophecies fulfilled during that time. I just gave you the highlights right there. And so these are the spring feasts that pointed to the beginning of the Christian era. The fall feasts point to the end of the Christian era. The first was the Feast of Trumpets. 
And the Feast of Trumpets, 10 days before the Day of Atonement, the trumpets were to be blown in Israel. They were silver trumpets. They were not the shofar. And they were blown loud. In fact, your trumpet would be the loudest thing in this, in this, uh, in this era that they had. That, he, that was man-made, was the trumpet. And so they would blow it to announce to everyone in Israel that the Day of Atonement was coming. To, it was to announce that the Day of Atonement was coming. The Day of Atonement was actually the most solemn festival in the whole cycle of the sanctuary. It was considered the most solemn. It was the climax, actually, of the... Um, of, of the sanctuary services, the Jew understood that the Day of Atonement represented the Day of Judgment. If you look at Jewish literature and to see how the Jew understood the Day of Atonement, they understood it to represent the judgment. And so it was the climax to their festival, but the Feast of Trumpets was to remind everyone to get ready, the judgment is coming. And then the Feast of Tabernacles was the final uh, celebration of the harvest. All the harvest was in. And we're going to study that one as the very last presentation in the Sanctuary Series. But today, we're going to look at the Day of Atonement. I want to do a quick review. We've been, we've been, up to this point, we've been studying the daily, the events that took place in the sanctuary each and every day. We talked about that the daily services began and ended with um, uh, a burnt offering, an offering of dedication. But in between those offerings, the services in the sanctuary were, were open for business. So people came with their various gifts, their offerings, and their sacrifices. And I talked about how, this is very important, you've got to stay with me, this is a review. Remember we talked about the sinner, when he recognized he had a sin, he brought his lamb and he went to the tabernacle. Once he arrived, the priest told him the part he would play and he then would confess his sin upon his, the victim. And thus signifying that the sin was on, that was on him because he was a sinner was now transferred onto the victim. Then he, with his own hand, had to take the life of the victim. And as he did, and the blood flowed from the innocent victim, the priest then would catch that blood. So the sin that was on the sinner, that was then placed on the lamb, was then caught in the blood. Then the priest would take that blood and would sprinkle it in the holy place, put it on the four corners of the altar and sprinkle it before the holy place seven times, signifying that the sin that was on the sinner that went on to the lamb, went into the blood, was now transferred into the sanctuary. Are you with me? Now, now let me pause here. You have to recognize something. God is trying to communicate a very complex thing to the, to the children of Israel. Are you with me? And if we're, if we're going to get this, we've got to follow the blood. Very important. So now it was signifying that the sinner left without sin on himself, but the record of that sin was still in the sanctuary. He went free, but the record was still there. Are you with me so far? So that was known as the daily. The yearly now comes into play at the end of the year when those sins that were in the sanctuary had to be dealt with. 
They had to be cleansed out. Are you with me so far? Okay, so we're going to be taking a look at that. And and, and really what we're looking at is the third and final step in the plan of salvation. The first step uh, was in the outer court where we learned about justification. The second step was in the, um, the holy place where we learned about sanctification. And then the third step is in the most holy place where we're going to learn about glorification. The three steps. And what we're going to see here is how God, in the end, is finally going to deal with the sin problem. Absolutely amazing. So uh, we have to remember now that everything we're looking at today, that we're going to look at today, is a shadow of the reality. Paul refers to the sanctuary services as a shadow, but the reality is in heaven. So if we want to understand what's happening up there, we have, to, we have to study what happened down here. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look at what happened down here so we can understand what is happening up there. Are you, is that making sense? So very important. So we're going to begin. Um, and so anyway, you notice these question marks here. We're going to see the counterpart as we continue our series on the sanctuary. We're going to study these. We're going to hit these things. All right? It's not that Pastor Bautage is going to leave you hanging. Um, we're going to unpack that. But the first one today is going to be on the Day of Atonement. You have your lessons with you. Let's take a look at question number one. And this is, we're going to begin with a bit of a review. <clears throat> what was contained in the second apartment or the most holy place? In Exodus 40, verse 20, 21 says, He took the the testimony and put it into the ark and inserted the poles through the rings of the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so we talked about the fact, we already studied, that in the most holy place, the only thing that was in there was the ark of the covenant. That was the only furniture in there. The ark, we have studied, was merely a golden box. That's it. The real value was what was inside. And we have learned that what was inside was the Ten Commandments. Not just the Ten Commandments inside, but they were located specifically under the mercy seat, communicating to us that those laws are the foundation of God's government. All government is founded on law. And so the government of God is founded on those Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments are not something Moses made up. It was something that God wrote with his own finger. Let's continue number two. Where was God by the symbol of his presence to meet with Israel's high priest? Exodus 25, 22 tells us, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony. So here we find the presence of God was over that mercy seat in the most holy place between those angels. Number three, who only was allowed in the second apartment, how often and for what purpose? Hebrews 9, 7 says, but into the second apartment, the, the high priest went alone, Once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself 
and for the people's sin. So how often did he go in? That's why the festival was known as the yearly. Pretty practical. Isn't that right? By the way, how would you like to have been the high priest? And know that you are going to walk, you're going to pull that certain that curtain aside and walk into the presence of the Almighty. You know, it's interesting, uh, there was a lot of instruction um, given to the priest on how, the, the high priest on how to prepare to go into the tabernacle. And if he didn't get any of it right, it was going to cost him his life. There were no games. And uh, so <clears throat> the week before the Day of Atonement, the priest would leave home and would move into the tabernacle precincts and would take up shop there. And he would begin this, the process of immersing himself into studying the role he was about to play. It was interesting because he would be actually accompanied by other priests that would be with him, including the, the old high priest, if he was still alive. And, uh, and he would walk through what he was supposed to do while the others were watching. And they would say, no, no, wait, you forgot this step. Oh, that's right, that's right, I got to go back. And so he would walk through rehearse in preparation for the Day of Atonement because he had to be ready when he pulled that curtain aside and walked into the presence of God. Amazing. By the way, there are two attachments on the very back. Uh, It's okay, students, you don't have to read them right now, but when you go home, you can. You'll find one of them as just a layout of all the things the high priest had to do that day uh, in summary. Let's continue. Number four. After the accumulation of the sins of the year, what took place on the 10th day of the seventh month? This is a very amazing verse. I hope that when you go back, these verses, when you go back home, you'll read Leviticus 16 um, carefully. But take a look here, Leviticus 16, 29 and 30. It says, this shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you shall afflict your soul. By the way, what, that, what, what, what is being implied here is that they needed to be searching their hearts. That's what that means by afflict their soul. And do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a what? A stranger. Okay, Bible students. Uh, in the Old Testament, they call it a stranger. That same word in the New Testament is called a, a Gentile. You see, this idea that salvation was only for Jews and in the New Testament God changed his mind and then opened it up to the Gentiles is fantasy. We can do a Bible study on this and I'll show you that from the very beginning the gospel was open to the whole world. But, but, but the Jews became um, uh, very exclusive and, uh, and they weren't sharing it. You know, we can do that as Christians. Buyer beware. But uh, they became exclusive. But from the beginning, the gospel was opened to the whole world. The Jews were supposed to be a nation of priests that were supposed to share the gospel with the world. That's what they were supposed to do. Anyway, uh, this shall be a statue for you forever. In the seventh month, on the, seventh, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls, do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. By the way, the idea that he dwells among you is that he has accepted God as his Savior. Okay, like Cornelius in the New Testament. 
It's, it's understood that they have accepted the Lord as their God. For on that day, the priest shall make what for you? Atonement for you. On the day of atonement, the priest made atonement. You know, I shared with you, and this, I might blow your mind here. Please forgive me. Lord, help me. There are a lot of people say that in, that in the outer court, when Jesus died on the cross, everything was completed. If that were true, then why is a festival at the end of the year called the Day of Atonement? It's illogical. No, my friends. What we're going to find, actually, is to have complete atonement, you need to have two atonements. I'm going to really confuse you. You're going to have to have two. Atonement actually means transfer or blotting out. Okay? And, the, and, and what we're going to look at today is that this process involves two transfers, two blotting outs, two atonements. The first one takes place when the sin is confessed on the lamb. There's a transfer of sin from the sinner to the lamb. That's the first atonement. But it's not a complete atonement until the day of atonement. That's the final atonement. And we're going to look before it's all said and done that another transfer takes place. And this is what God was trying to teach Israel. It wasn't over in the first transfer. It's over at the second transfer. But if you don't have the first transfer, the second, there is no transfer for you. There is no second. Does that make sense? I hope I haven't lost you. Okay, now here's a question. Did Israel look forward to this day? Was Israel afraid of this day? No, because Israel understood that the record that had been transferred of their sin to the sanctuary was going to be forever removed. They looked forward to that day. They were excited for that day. It was a day of solemnity though, no games. They, had, they understood they had to search their hearts. They had 10 days before the Day of Atonement to make sure this deal was done and that there was nothing, there was no, nothing harbored there that would separate them because the Bible says in the instructions that the Israelite that did not engage in this process would be forever cut off from the nation. So this was very solemn and they understood it but it was a joyful solemnity because they knew the end was coming and that it would all be removed. And so what God was trying to teach them in one year was the entire plan of salvation. Then the next year would start over. But every year he was teaching them how he was going to deal with and eradicate sin. This day is known as the Day of Atonement. It's an old English word, at one meant. It's the day when that which was separated is brought together, when the Creator and His creatures once again are united forever. That's what it represented. Okay, let's take a look now at number five. What happened at the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement? Leviticus 16, 19, and 30, it says, Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it, on the altar, the brazen altar, with his finger seven times, and cleanse it and concentrate it from the, or consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the children of Israel. For on that day, the priest shall make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So it was a time in which the sanctuary, by the way, this is important, that while the sanctuary was being cleansed, the children of Israel were outside afflicting their souls, making sure that there was a corresponding cleansing in their heart. Tuck that one away in the back of your mind because when type meets antitype, we're going to revisit that. 
But while the cleansing on earth, while the cleansing in the sanctuary was taking place, the children outside were to be searching their heart. You know, there might be some question here about these two atonement things. I want to touch on it right here since we were talking about Martin Luther earlier today, this morning. When a, a Christian asks for forgiveness, his sin is placed on Christ. But that sin is recorded in the books of heaven. And right next to it, in red, is the word pardon. Whatever that sin was, right next to it is the word pardon. But that sin awaits for the heavenly day of atonement to have it completely removed. How many of you remember the story of uh, a dream that Martin Luther had in which Satan was tormenting him with his sins? And, and in the dream, there was a list of sins that he had committed and, and Satan was taunting Martin Luther of his lost condition. And as Martin Luther is reading the list of sins, on the very bottom, the devil had his hand over something. How many of you remember even hearing this? Raise it nice and high so people don't think I made this up. All right. And, um, and so what happens is that, the devil, is that Martin Luther in his dream asked the devil to move his hand and the devil would not move his hand. He demands the devil to move his hand and the devil will not move his hand. And he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, move your hand. And he moves his hand and in red he saw pardoned. Pardoned. The blood of Jesus pardons us. So I just want to, I don't want to get you confused or discouraged. When you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, he takes on your sin. The sin is recorded in heaven, but next to it the word pardoned is written there. Okay? All right. Let's take a look at number six. How many goats were chosen on the day of atonement? Leviticus 16, 5 says, And he shall take from the congregation the children of Israel, how many? Two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Open your Bibles. Let's revisit this because this one is really a, a matter of confusion in the Christian world. Leviticus and let's go to chapter 16. There are those that say that both of these goats represent Christ in some way in his work of atonement, and I respectfully disagree. Leviticus 16, and I am going to read verse, I'm, I'm going to read the verse I read again, verse 5, beginning in 5, it says, and he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Let's skip down now to verse 7. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, verse 8. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one, lo one lot for the Lord. In the Hebrew, that word is Adonai. One goat was for Adonai. And the other for the scapegoat. That word in the Hebrew is Azazel. Azazel. That word Azazel is uh, perplexing to many. The word appears in Scripture four times. All four are in this chapter. Leviticus 16. 
If you look at the scholars of yesteryear, they will point you to Azazel being uh, the devil. And how did they arrive at that conclusion? You arrive at it by context. You arrive at it by watching how Azazel is used. That's how you know that it does not represent Christ. And I'm just going to mention a few. First of all, it says one goat is for, Azazel, is for Adonai, that is God, and the other one stands in opposition, Azazel. The goat for Adonai is sacrificed. The goat for Azazel is not sacrificed. We find that the goat for Adonai is part of the cleansing process. We're going to discover that the goat for Azazel doesn't enter the process until the cleansing and the atonement are over. And then we're going to watch the role that he plays and we're going to explain it. Very, very interesting. Are you with me so far? Okay. Um, by the way, you have to remember something that, that Paul tells us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That other goat, his blood is never shed. He is not part of the atonement process in the sense of atoning. Atonement is made on him, and we're going to see how. But he does not atone. The first goat does. That represents Jesus. Okay, so let's take a look. Uh, and where did I leave you? In number six, let's take a look at number... Oh, and by the way, I left you a supplement in the back that shows you some of the scholars' uh, understanding of Zazel. Very interesting. And you can look at it after class. Okay. Number seven, what happened to the Lord's goat? Leviticus 16.9 says, And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell, Adonai, and do what with him? Offer it as a sin offering. Atonement is made with this goat, dear friends. Let's take a look uh, on, at number eight. Where did the priest sprinkle the blood of the Lord's goat? Leviticus 16, verse 15 says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Why? Because inside that ark was what? The law of God. And the sinner broke the law. And the wages of sin is, is death. But the blood of Christ is the substitute for the person who accepts Jesus as their Savior. Jesus is the substitute. He takes the place of the sinner. And so the blood of Jesus then is what atones for you and me. It pays the price. Are you with me? Very, very important. Let's take a look at number... By the way, it's, it's on the mercy seat. Give me another name for mercy. Grace grace. That's what it is, friends. Amazing grace. That's what it is. Number nine. <clears throat> the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord's goat on the mercy seat was to make atonement for what part of the sanctuary? Leviticus 16, 16 says, for he shall make an atonement for the holy place. Why? Take a look at number 10. Why does the holy place need to be cleansed? Leviticus 16, 16 tells us because of the uncleanliness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and for all their sins 
And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. And so you remember, as they were confessing their sin on the lamb and the blood was taken into the tabernacle, that, that that record symbolically was being transferred in and was in there and had to be removed. Does that make sense? You with me so far? Okay. Let's take a look now at number 11. <clears throat> While the high priest was involved in cleansing the sanctuary, what were the people to be doing? We talked about this, Leviticus 16, 29. You shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who sojourns with you. In other words, this is to have your focus. You need to make sure that everything is right between your soul and your Savior because this deal is almost over. And if you don't do it, you're going to be cut off forever. There's a message here for you and I, friends. You and I need to be studying what the, what the judgment in heaven is all about. And when was the last time you heard a sermon on the judgment? We need to know about it. What we're going to discover before we're done with the series is that the Bible actually gives us the starting point of the judgment. We're going to look at a Bible prophecy in our upcoming studies that tells us when the judgments begin. More than that, you and I are going to sit here and we're going to study the operation of the judgment. We're going to pull together all the Bible scriptures and we're going to see how the judgment works. And you know, many people are afraid of the judgment, I guarantee you. And, and who they're afraid of is the Father. They're afraid of God, the big heavy. You know, I wonder if, you, if I'm going to pass the test. Hey, when we're done with the study, you're no longer going to be afraid of the Father. Remember me. You will not be afraid of the Father when we're done with the study. You will not be. Let's take a look at the note below number 11. The Day of Atonement was understood by Israel as a solemn day of judgment. Every sin had to be confessed and forsaken. Those who refused were on that very day cut off forever from the camp of Israel. There's your reference. Remember, sin separates the sinner from God. The Day of Atonement means at one meant, that is, to cleanse, forgive, pardon, purge, or reconcile. In other words, the goal is to restore the sinner totally and completely to his creator. Afflict your souls means more than just fasting. It included soul searching. A review of one's progress in holy living, a seeking of God, confession of sin, making amends for neglected duties. In short, it's to make things right with God and man. You know, when I think of heart searching, I can't help but think of that night so long ago in the upper room when Jesus informed his disciples that one of them was going to betray him. Now, the disciples had spent three and a half years with Jesus, and they knew that everything he said was going to happen, happened. When he cursed the fig tree, it died. When Jesus said something was going to happen, it happened. And when he said that one of them was going to betray him, the collective gasp that went through the group was, was, was deafening. They, they, they sat there going, oh. they knew that one of them was going to betray him. And at that moment, they began a process of searching their own hearts. They afflicted themselves. And as they searched, they searched to see if they harbored any bitterness or any resentment. 
And finally, they, they, they couldn't see anything, but they knew that what he said was true, and they knew that his word was right, and so they looked at him and they asked him a question. Is it me? Is it I? My friends, Israel knew that they had to make sure everything was right. There's a message here for us, and we're going to look at this more carefully when we bridge this over. So now, at this point in the service, the priest, with the sacrifices, have dropped seven times the blood on the mercy seat, has cleansed the golden altar from the sins that were there, have cleansed the brazen altar from the sins that were there, and now all those sins are transferred onto him. He is the conduit. Watch what he does next, children of Israel. Very important. Number 12. What happened to the live goat when the work of cleansing the sanctuary was completed? Leviticus 16, 20 and 21. And when he, the priest, had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Pause. When does the live goat come into play? When it's over. The cleansing is done. The atonement has, has for the, 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 the record of sin has been removed. Now the live goat comes in. Watch his role. And he shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. What's the next word? Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all the transgression concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Isn't that interesting? What we are looking at here is what is referred to as an elimination rite. The sins of Israel that had been confessed the sins that had been forgiven and the record there are now collected and they're placed on Azazel. Why? Because he is the responsible agent for sin. He is recognized as the cause, as the instigator for all the sins that the people of God committed. And so the blame for all of that goes on him. So if you will, you can view the devil as a trash can. All this is put back on the original source for sin. Then he is sent away into a wilderness. Did you catch that? Now listen, friends, when we study the millennium, we're going to revisit this. And it's, the, the, the millennium is, 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 a big part of it is about this. And it's going to make sense once we get there. But what we're looking at is an elimination rite. Take a look at the note right below 12. Please note that the live goat is never what? Slain. The live goat only enters the picture when the work of the sanctuary is complete. Thus it is shown to Israel that Satan is the final responsible agent for sin. Remember sin originated where? In hev- with Satan in heaven. He is the responsible agent. Let's take a look now at number 13 because now, now we're going to transition. Paul's going to help us transition. 
And we're going to go from type to anti-type. 13. Did the Day of Atonement and the earthly sanctuary foreshadow the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary? Paul in Hebrews 9.23 says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. And what's another word for purified? Cleansed. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You see, Paul tells us in Hebrews 8 and 9 that the blood of goats and the blood of sheep and of bulls never took away a single sin from anyone. It was only to bring Israel to faith to help them understand how God was going to deal with the sin problem. And so when Jesus went to heaven, he went, remember all our sins were placed on him? One thing I didn't mention to you, and I think I'll mention it here, is that there were two ways for uh, the Hebrew sin to enter the sanctuary. And we talked about one, and that is the blood, right? Being sprinkled. There was another way. If the lamb was prepared and eaten, then his blood was not supposed to go into the tabernacle. When the priest ate it and he went into the tabernacle, then the transfer took place. That was the other way the transfer was to take place. So when Jesus leaves, after his resurrection, he goes to heaven, he takes the record of sin of his people that have placed confidence in him with him. And it's his blood that he... Uh, presents before the onlooking universe on behalf of the sinner who asks for forgiveness. Did I just lose you? You got quiet on me. Does that make sense? Hey, the Lord is trying to show us something really complex through, the, through a sanctuary system. Okay, he's trying to break it down for us as easy as possible. He wants us to track with him so we can cooperate with him. And so Paul is telling us, Paul bridges and is showing that what was happening on the earth was only a play out of what's going on up there. It's not the blood of goats that takes away anybody's sin. It's the blood of Christ that takes away the sin. All right, look at the note right below 13. <clears throat> yes, this day's service pointed to the blotting out of sin by Jesus, our high priest, in the heavenly sanctuary. He is there to mediate for his people and stands ready to blot out the sins of all who will excuse, exercise faith in his shed blood. The ancient day of atonement foreshadowed the final atonement to be made for the repentant sinner. The final atonement points us to the final judgment which will forever settle the sin question in the life of every individual. So remember, the first transfer of sin takes place when we place our sins on Jesus, right? Then Jesus is the mediator, the vehicle that takes our sin into the sanctuary. But Jesus also becomes the vehicle who takes it out, and then places it on Azazel. That's the second atonement. Y'all don't sound excited. <laughs> That's why this deal does not end when the lamb is slain on the outer court. The deal ends on the day of atonement. My, young, my friends, we have got to study this Ancient Israel did because they understood that their salvation was dependent. You and I need to study this 
Don't place your soul in the hand of some preacher who in the end may be lost himself. You need to study this for yourself. What you're hearing is the gospel as the children of Israel understood it and it is the gospel that the children of God today must understand. All right, now let's take a look at the note on our last page on the very top. Thus, removal of sin from the heavenly sanctuary is the final act of the sanctuary sacrificial services. Only Christ bears the penalty for sin, which is death. And he did that on the cross. The early service, the earthly service, simply showed that Satan is the final responsible agent in sin. Let me pause there. In other words, we cannot blame God for sin. We got to put the blame where it belongs. He is charged with the sins that he led the redeemed to commit. In order for Christ to remove sin from the heavenly sanctuary, a work of judgment will be needed. That is why this service in ancient Israel was known as the day of judgment. It was the most solemn day in the history of Israel because the Israelites knew that their sins were being removed from the sanctuary and it is to be the most solemn day in the life of the Christian as well. So what have we learned so far in our study of the sanctuary? We have been studying the three phases of the ministry of Christ. Phase one is that Jesus was the sacrifice that made atonement for us possible. Phase two, uh, wait, well maybe I should read it from up here. So, so the first one is, uh, is Christ's work as sacrifice, and that took place in the outer court, and of course that was completed at the cross. And here we learn about justification. God treats us just if we have not sinned. And I refer to this as victory over the record of sin. It deals with our past. So Christ's atoning sacrifice makes forgiveness possible now for the repentant sinner. The second thing we learned is Christ's work as priest, in his work of intercessor, and that takes place in the holy place. And that begins when Jesus resurrects from the grave after he spends some time with the disciples, 40 days, he goes to heaven. And then Pentecost, he pours out a spirit. And here we learn about sanctification or victory over the power of sin. Here Jesus mediates his own blood and merits, applying the benefits of his atoning sacrifice to the surrendered sinner. And can you say amen? We're talking about righteousness by faith. It's the faith in the righteousness of Christ that he will work in you and me. Then the last one has to do with his work of final judgment. This takes place in the most holy place and it's dealing with the final removal of the record of sin. This is symbolized by the work of the most holy place. The cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. Thus the cleansing of the sanctuary refers to Christ's final work of judgment in the heavenly sanctuary and this is referred to as glorification and that is victory over the presence of sin. The final eradication. This is the day when the work of atonement is completed and finalized for the redeemer, for the redeemed sinner. I want to share something with you I want you to really think about. Every sin that has ever been committed is recorded in two places. One is in the books. The other is in our memory. That's where they're recorded. When Jesus made himself available as a sacrifice for us and our sins were transferred to him and then in the sanctuary, those records remain. 
But on the Day of Atonement, the books are wiped clean. And all those sins now that were ours, the cause, are now placed on Azazel. Let me share with you what this means. Not only is the record in heaven cleansed of that sin, so if you think you're going to go through the rest of eternity remembering what you did here, think again. Think again. Let's take a look at number 14. When does Christ perform this final phase of his ministry, the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary? Daniel 8.14 tells us, And he said unto me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. This is a prophecy pointing forward to the day that the heavenly sanctuary will be cleansed. And you and I are going to study that. What we're going to be looking at is the longest time prophecy recorded in the Bible. Now, our next lesson, though, we're not going to look at it quite yet. Our next lesson is a setup to prepare us for that lesson and for another lesson down the road. Uh, We're going to be looking at the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel, um, we're going to find a prophecy there that lays the groundwork for the prophecy of the 2300-day and also the one that, that identifies Satan's end-time movement against the heavenly sanctuary. So this, we're going to do a little bit of a, of a detour, and I want you students to read Daniel 2 this week and study it. Then we're going to come back, and we're going to flesh that out. This is a very fascinating chapter in the Bible, and this chapter in the Bible is credited with uh, converting more infidels than any chapter in the Bible. This chapter is, and we're going to find out why. So make sure to have your homework done. So your response to Jesus. My friends, are you willing to place your life in, the hand, in, in Jesus' hand so he can work the miracles needed to completely cleanse you and your life record of sin? If that's your desire, raise your hands. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.